Hello, funny people. Thanks for joining me here today on Four Cents a Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to moan about. Stay tuned. Welcome back once again to the Four Cents Halloween special mini-series, the reading of Neil Gaiman's Coraline. I'm going to keep this one short, although I'm pretty sure I promised you every single time that I keep these short since the first episode, but I promise this time that I will indeed keep it short. Many of you will remember the Coraline film that was done by uh, Henry Selleck. Uh, the, the brilliant animator who did uh, both Nightmare Before Christmas and A Corpse Bride helped to animate those. Uh, and he's, he's a fantastic, fantastic stop-motion animation director. Well, we're getting into the part of the book where things are radically different between Selleck's version and Neil Gaiman's version. Um, we're getting into the final escalating conflict between Coraline and the other mother with chapters 7, 8, and 9, and uh, definitely 10 as well. But where things diverge uh, quite drastically, believe it or not, between the, between the source material in the movie most radically is the fact that there's a a character you may have noticed by this point that there's a character who if you saw the movie is not in this book and it's the character of YB uh (laughs) Yborn who is the grandson of the landlady who owns the building in which Coraline and her family live um Henry Selleck, apparently when he wrote the original screenplay, because he also wrote the screenplay to the movie, he apparently wrote it as a direct, almost one-to-one correlation and adaptation of the book. And he showed the screenplay to Neil while he was making the movie, when he was in the early stages of it. And Neil said, probably the best thing an author of novels, novellas, any any material that can get adapted into a, a potential film can say to a director who's adapting their material and wants their input, which is, this is too much like the book. You have to make it into your own thing, put your own stamp on it, which is exactly what Henry Selleck did. And one of the things that he did to differentiate between the book and the movie was to introduce a completely new character. That would be, again, the character of YB, the the creepy little goth dude with his um, funky-looking masks and his obsession with banana slugs and his bicycle and so forth, um, who fixed a big issue uh, with, with the adaptation from the movie, from the book to the movie, which is the fact that Coraline, in much of this story, as those of you who have been listening will note, she's alone a lot of the time. She doesn't really have very many... There are whole chapters where she's basically inside of her own head. 
and she's reflecting, she's thinking, and that, um, and, and, you know, there are plenty of moments where she's with other characters that is capable of having conversations, but there are a lot of moments, like, say, for example, the chapter we read previously, you know, just as she realizes, um, one of the chapters we previously read where she realizes that her parents are not coming back. There's nobody in that scene, there's nobody in that whole chapter that she's talking to that she can process this with until the cat reemerges, of course. And so the whole point of creating the character of Wybie, as Henry Selleck pointed out, was to make sure that Coraline had somebody to talk to so she wouldn't have to talk to herself the whole time. <laughs> Pretty clever. Uh, trick to create a whole new character just to make sure that more dialogue could take place. But that was Henry Selleck's stamp on this story, and uh, it worked for the movie. Uh, For a lot of viewers, I know they don't particularly like that element because they do think, to a certain extent, it takes a certain amount of agency away from Coraline, because of course the minute you introduce this character, they have to be there the whole time. Whereas in the book, those of you who've been listening know that she's very self-sufficient and self-reliant. She's capable of getting herself out of these own scrapes, even if she doesn't think she's capable of it. But then again, we never do know what we're capable of doing until we're put into a situation where we have to do it. You know, life is full of those make-or-break moments, and I think what's wonderful about this novella is that Neil knew that. And he was able to put it into a wonderful character who is as good as Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz and as great as Alice from Alice in Wonderland. He was able to create a feminist protagonist who was self-sufficient and really capable on her own. And so with that said, let's rejoin her with this continuation of Neil Gaiman's Coraline. Chapter 8 The other mother looked healthier than before. There was a little blush to her cheeks and her hair was wriggling like lazy snakes on a warm day. Her black button eyes seemed as if they had been freshly polished. She pushed through the mirror as if she were walking through nothing more solid than water, and had stared down at Coraline. Then she had opened the door with her little silver key. She picked Coraline up, just as Coraline's real mother had when Coraline was much younger, cradling the half-sleeping child as if she were a baby. The other mother carried Coraline into the kitchen and put her down very gently upon the countertop. Coraline struggled to wake herself up, conscious only for the moment of having been cuddled and loved, and wanting more of it than realizing where she was and who she was with. "'There, my sweet Coraline,' said her other mother, I came and fetched you out of the cupboard. You needed to be taught a lesson. But we temper our justice with mercy here. We love the sinner and we hate the sin. Now, if you will be a good child who loves her mother, be compliant and fair-spoken, 
you and I shall understand each other perfectly, and we shall love each other perfectly as well. Coraline scratched the sleep grit from her eyes. There were other children in there, she said. Old ones from a long time ago. Were there? said the other mother. She was bustling between the pans and the fridge, bringing out eggs and cheeses, butter and a slab of sliced pink bacon. Yes, said Coraline, there were. I think you're planning to turn me into one of them, a dead shell. Her other mother smiled gently. With one hand she cracked the eggs into a bowl, with the other she whisked them and whirled them. Then she dropped a pat of butter into a frying pan, where it hissed and fizzed and spun as she sliced thin slices of cheese. She poured the melted butter and the cheese into the egg mixture and whisked it some more. Now I think you're being silly, dear, said the other mother. I love you. I will always love you. Nobody sensible believes in ghosts anyway. That's because they're all such liars. Smell the lovely breakfast I'm making for you. She poured the yellow mixture into the pan. Cheese omelet, your favorite. Coraline's mouth watered. You like games, she said. That's what I've been told. The other mother's black eyes flashed. Everybody likes games, was all she said. Yes, said Coraline. She climbed down from the counter and sat at the table. The bacon was sizzling and spitting under the grill. It smelled wonderful. Wouldn't you be happier if you won me fair and square, asked Coraline. Possibly, said the other mother. She had a show of unconcernedness, but her fingers twitched and drummed, and she licked her lips with her scarlet tongue. What exactly are you offering? Me, said Coraline and she gripped her knees under the table to stop them from shaking. If I lose, I'll stay here with you forever, and I'll let you love me. I'll be a most dutiful daughter, I'll eat your food and play happy families, and I'll let you sew buttons into my eyes. Her other mother stared at her black buttons unblinking. That sounds very fun, she said. And if you do not lose, then you let me go. You let everyone go, my real father and mother, the dead children, everyone you've trapped here. The other mother took the bacon from under the grill and put it on a plate. Then she slipped the cheese omelet from the pan onto the plate, flipped it as she did so, letting it fold itself into a perfect omelet shape. She placed the breakfast plate in front of Coraline, along with a glass of freshly squeezed orange juice and a mug of frothy hot chocolate. Yes, she said, I think I like this game, but what kind of game shall it be? A riddle game? A test of knowledge or of skill? An exploring game, suggested Coraline. A finding things game. And what is it you think you should be finding in this hide-and-go-seek game, Coraline Jones? Coraline hesitated. Then, my parents, said Coraline, and the souls of the children behind the mirror. The other mother smiled at this triumphantly, and Coraline wondered if she had made the right choice. Still, it was too late to change her mind now. 
Adieu, said the other mother. Now, eat up your breakfast, my sweet. Don't worry, it won't hurt you. Coraline stared at the breakfast, hating herself for giving in so easily, but she was starving. How do I know you'll keep your word? asked Coraline. I swear it, said the other mother. I swear it on my own mother's grave. Does she have a grave? asked Coraline. Oh, yes, said the other mother. I put her in there myself. And when I found her trying to crawl out, I put her back. Swear on something else, so I can trust you to keep your word. My right hand, said the other mother, holding it up. She raggled her long fingers, slowly displaying the claw-like nails. I swear on that. Coraline shrugged. Okay, she said. It's a deal. She ate the breakfast, trying not to wolf it down. She was hungrier than she had thought. As she ate, her other mother stared at her. It was hard to read expressions into those black button eyes, but Coraline thought that her other mother looked hungry, too. She drank the orange juice, but even though she knew she would like it, she could not bring herself to taste the hot chocolate. Where should I start looking? asked Coraline. Where you wish, said her other mother, as if she did not care at all. Coraline looked at her, and Coraline thought hard. There was no point, she decided, in exploring the garden and the grounds. They didn't exist. They weren't real. There was no abandoned tennis court in the other mother's world, no bottomless well. All that was real was the house itself. She looked around the kitchen. She opened the oven, peered into the freezer, poked into a salad compartment of the fridge. The other mother followed her about, looking at Coraline with a smirk always hovering at the edge of her lips. How big are souls anyway, said Coraline. The other mother sat down at the kitchen table and leaned back against the wall, saying nothing. She picked at her teeth with a long crimson varnish fingernail. Then she tapped the finger gently, tap, 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 against the polished black surface of her black button eye. Fine, said Coraline, don't tell me, I don't care, it doesn't matter if you help me or not. Everyone knows that a soul is the same size as a beach ball. She was hoping the other mother would say something like, Nonsense, they're the size of ripe onions or suitcases or grandfather clocks. But the other mother simply smiled, and the tap, tap, tapping of her fingernail against the eye was as steady and relentless as the drip of water droplets from the faucet into the sink. And then Coraline realized it was simply the noise of the water, and she was alone in the room. Coraline shivered. She preferred the other mother to have a location. If she were nowhere, then she could be anywhere, and after all, it is always easier to be afraid of something you cannot see. She put her hands into her pockets and her fingers closed around the reassuring shape of the stone with the hole in it. She pulled it out of her pocket and held it in front of her as if she were holding a gun and walked into the hall. There was no sound but the tap tap of the water dripping into the metal sink. She glanced at the mirror at the end of the hall. For a moment, it clouded over, and it seemed to her that faces swam in the glass, indistinct and shapeless, and then 
the faces were gone, and there was nothing in the mirror but a girl who was small for her age, holding something that glowed gently like a green coal. Coraline looked down at her hands, surprised. It was just a stone with a hole in it, a nondescript brown pebble. Then she looked back into the mirror, where the stone glimmered like an emerald. A trail of green fire blew from the pebble in the mirror and drifted toward Coraline's bedroom. Hmm, said Coraline. She walked into the bedroom. The toys fluttered excitedly as she walked in, as if they were pleased to see her, and a little tank rolled out of the toy box to greet her, its tread rolling over several other toys. It fell from the toy box onto the floor, tipping as it fell, and lay on the carpet like a beetle on its back, grumbling and grinding its treads before Coraline picked it up and turned it over. The tank fled under the bed in, in embarrassment. Coraline looked around the room. She looked in the cupboards and the drawers. Then she picked up one end of the toy box and tipped all the toys in it out onto the carpet, where they grumbled and stretched and wiggled awkwardly free of each other. A gray marble rolled across the floor and clicked against the wall. None of the toys looked particularly soul-like, she thought. She picked up and examined a silver charm bracelet from which hung tiny animal charms that chased each other around the perimeter of the bracelet, the fox never catching the rabbit, the bear never gaining on the fox. Coraline opened her hand and looked at the stone with the hole in it, hoping for a clue but not finding one. Most of the toys that had been in the toy box had now crawled away to hide under the bed, and the few toys that were left, a green plastic soldier, the glass marble, a vivid pink yo-yo and such, were the kind of things you find in the bottom of toy boxes in the real world, forgotten objects, abandoned and unloved. She was about to leave and look elsewhere. And then she remembered a voice in the darkness, a gentle, whispering voice, and what it had told her to do. She raised the stone with the hole in it and held it in front of her right eye. She closed her left eye and looked at the room through the hole in the stone. Through the stone, the world was gray and colorless, like a pencil drawing. Everything in it was gray. No. Not quite everything. Something glinted on the floor, something the color of an ember in a nursery fire, the color of scarlet and orange tulip nodding in the May sun. Coraline reached out her left hand, scared that if she took her eye off it, it would vanish, and she fumbled for the burning thing. Her fingers closed about something smooth and cool. She snatched it up and then lowered the stone with a hole in it from her eye and looked down. The gray glass marble from the bottom of the toy box sat dully in the pink palm of her hand. She raised the stone to her eye once more and looked through it at the marble. Once again, the marble burned and flickered with a red fire. A voice whispered in her mind, Indeed, lady, it comes to me that I certainly was a boy. Now, now I do think on it. Oh, but you must hurry. There are two of us still to find, and the bell dam is already angry with you for uncovering me. If I am going to do this, thought Coraline, 
I'm not going to do it in her clothes. She changed back into her pajamas and her dressing gown and her slippers, leaving the gray sweater and the black jeans neatly folded up on the bed, the orange boots on the floor by the toy box. She put the marble into her dressing gown pocket and walked out into the hall. Something stung her face and hands like sand blowing on a beach on a windy day. She covered her eyes and pushed forward. The sand stings got worse, and it got harder and harder to walk, as if she were pushing into the wind on a particularly blistery day. It was a vicious wind, and a cold one. She took a step backwards, the way she had come. Oh, keep going, whispered a ghost voice in her ear, for the bell dam is angry. She stepped forward into the hallway, into another gust of wind which stung her cheeks and face with invisible sand, sharp as needles, sharp as glass. Play fair, shouted Coraline into the wind. There was no reply, but the wind whipped about her one more time petulantly, and then dropped away and was gone. As she passed the kitchen, Coraline could hear the sudden silence, the drip, drip, of the water from the leaking tap, or perhaps the other mother's long fingernails tapping impatiently against the table. Coraline resisted the urge to look. In a couple of strides, she reached the front door, and she walked outside. Coraline went down the steps and around the house until she reached the other Miss Bink and Miss Forcible's flat. The lamps around the door were flickering on and off almost randomly now, spelling out no words that Coraline could understand. The door was closed. She was afraid it was locked, and she pushed on it with all her strength. First, it stuck. Then suddenly it gave, and with a jerk, Coraline stumbled into the dark room beyond. Coraline closed one hand around the stone with the hole in it and walked forward into blackness. She expected to find a curtained anteroom, but there was nothing there. The room was dark. The theater was empty. She moved ahead cautiously. Something rustled above her. She looked up into a deeper darkness, and she, and as she did, her feet knocked against something. She reached down, picked up a flashlight, and clicked it on, sweeping the beam around the room. The theater was derelict and abandoned. Chairs were broken on the floor, and old dusty spiderwebs draped the walls and hung from the rotten wood and the decomposing velvet hangings. Something rustled once again. Coraline directed her light beam upward toward the ceiling. There were things up there, hairless, jellyish. She thought they might have once had faces, might even have once been dogs. But no dogs had wings like bats or could hang like spiders like bats upside down. The night startled the creatures, and one of them took to the air, its wings whirring heavily through the dust. Coraline ducked as it swooped close to her, it came to rest on a far wall, and it began to clamber upside down back to the nest of the dog bats upon the ceiling. Coraline raised the stone to her eye, and she scanned the room through it, looking for something that glowed or glinted, a telltale sign that somewhere in this room was another hidden soul. 
She ran the beam of the flashlight about the room as she searched, the thick dust in the air making the light beam seem almost solid. There was something up on the back wall behind the ruined stage. It was grayish-white, twice the size of Coraline herself, and it was stuck to the back wall like a slug. Coraline took a deep breath. I'm not afraid, she told herself. I'm not. She did not believe herself, but she scrambled up onto the old stage, fingers sinking into the rotting wood as she pulled herself up. As she got closer to the thing on the wall, she saw that it was some kind of sack, like a spider's egg sack. It twitched in the light beam. Something inside the sack was something that looked like a person, but a person with two heads, with twice as many arms and legs as it should have. The creature in the sack seemed horribly unformed and unfinished, as if two plasticine people had been warmed and rolled together, squashed and pressed into one thing. Coraline hesitated. She did not want to approach the thing. The dog bats dropped one by one from the ceiling and began to circle the room, coming closer to her, but never touching her. Perhaps there are no souls hidden in here, she thought. Perhaps I can just leave and go somewhere else. She took a last look through the hole in the stone. The abandoned theater was still a bleak gray, but now there was a brown glow, as rich and bright as polished cherry wood, coming from inside the sack. Whatever was glowing was, behind, was being held in one of the hands of the thing on the wall. Coraline walked slowly across the damp stage, trying to make as little noise as she could, afraid that if she disturbed the thing in the sack, it would open its eyes and see her, and then... But there was nothing she could think of as scary as having it look at her. Her heart pounded in her chest. She took another step forward. She had never been so scared, but still she walked forward until she reached the sack. Then she pushed her hand into the sticky, clinging whiteness of the stuff on the wall. It crackled softly like a tiny fire as she pushed, and it clung to her skin and clothes like a spiderweb clings, like white cotton candy. She pushed her hand into it, and she reached upward until she touched a cold hand, which was, she could feel, closed around another glass marble. The creature's skin felt slippery as if it had been covered in jelly. Coraline tugged at the marble. At first, nothing happened. It was held tight in the creature's grasp. Then, one by one, the fingers loosened their grip, and the marble slipped into her hands. She pulled her arm back through the sticky webbing, relieved that the thing's eyes had not opened. She shone the light on its faces. They resembled, she decided, the younger versions of Miss Fink and Miss Forcible, were twisted and squeezed together like two lumps of wax that had melted and melded together into one ghastly thing. 
Without warning, one of the creature's hands made a grab for Coraline's arm. Its fingernails scraped her skin, but it was too slippery to grip, and Coraline pulled away successfully. Then the eyes opened, four black buttons glinting and staring down at her, and two voices that sound like no voice that Coraline had ever heard began to speak to her. One of them wailed and whispered, the other buzzed like a fat and angry blue bottle at a window pane, but the voice said as one person, THIEF! GIVE IT BACK! STOP! THIEF! The air became alive with dog bats. Coraline began to back away. She realized then that terrifying though the thing on the wall, well, that had once been Miss, Mrs. Spink and Miss Forcible, was, it was attached to the wall by its web encased in its cocoon it could not follow her the dog bats flapped and fluttered about her but they did not move to hurt Coraline she climbed down from the stage shone the flashlight about the old theater looking for the way out flee miss wailed a girl's voice in her head flee now you have two of us flee this place while your blood still flows Coraline dropped the marble into her pocket beside the other she spotted the door ran to it and pulled on it until it opened. Chapter 9 Outside, the world had become a formless, swirling mist, with no shapes or shadows behind it, while the house itself seemed to have twisted and stretched. It seemed to Coraline that it was crouching and staring down at her, as if it were not really a house, but only the idea of a house. And the person who had had the idea, she was certain, was not a good person. There was sticky web stuff clinging to her arm, and she wiped it off as best she could. The gray windows of the house slanted at strange angles. The other mother was waiting for her, standing on the grass with her arms folded. Her black button eyes were expressionless, but her lips were pressed tightly together in a cold fury. When she saw Coraline, she reached out one long white hand, and she crooked a finger. Coraline walked toward her. The other mother said nothing. I got two, said Coraline. One soul still to go. The expression on the other mother's face did not change. She might not have heard what Coraline said. Well, I thought you'd just want to know, said Coraline. Thank you, Coraline said the other mother coldly, and her voice did not just come from her mouth, it came from the mist and the fog and the house and the sky. She said, you know that I love you. And despite everything, Coraline nodded. It was true, the other mother loved her, but she loved Coraline as a miser loves money or a dragon loves its gold. In the other mother's button eyes, Coraline knew that she was a possession, nothing more, a tolerated pet whose behavior was no longer amusing. I don't want your love, said Coraline. I don't want anything from you. Not even a helping hand, asked the other mother. 
You have been doing so well, after all. I thought you might want a little hint to help you with the rest of your treasure hunt. I'm doing fine on my own, said Coraline. Yes, said the other mother, but if you wanted to get into the flat in the front, the empty one, to look around, you would find the door locked. And then where would you be? Oh, Coraline pondered this for a moment. Then she said, Is there a key? The other mother stood there in the paper-gray fog of the flattening world. Her black hair drifted about her head as if it had, had a mind and a purpose all its own. She coughed suddenly in the back of her throat and then opened her mouth. The other mother reached up her hand and removed a small brass front door key from her tongue. Here, she said, you'll need this to get in. She tossed the key casually toward Coraline, who caught it, one-handed, before she could think about whether she wanted it or not. The key was still slightly damp. A chill wind blew about them, and Coraline shivered and looked away. When she looked back, she was alone. Uncertainly, she walked around to the front of the house and stood in front of the door to the empty flat. Like all the doors, it was painted bright green. She does not mean you well, whispered a ghost voice in her ear. We do not believe that she would help you. It must be a trick, Coraline said. Yes, you're right, I expect. Then she put the key in the lock and turned it. Silently, the door swung open, and silently, Coraline walked inside. The flat had walls the color of old milk. The wood boards of the floor were uncarpeted and dusty, with the marks and patterns of old carpets and rugs on them. There was no furniture in there, only places where furniture had once been. Nothing decorated the walls. There were discolored rectangles on the walls to show where paintings or photographs had once hung. It was so silent that Coraline imagined that she could hear the motes of dust drifting through the air. She found herself to be quite worried that something would jump out at her, so she began to whistle. She thought it might make it harder for things to jump out at her if she was whistling. First, she walked through the empty kitchen. Then she walked through an empty bathroom containing only a cast iron bath, and in the bath a dead spider the size of a small cat. The last room she looked at had, she supposed, once been a bedroom. She could imagine that the rectangular dust shadow on the floorboards had once been a bed. Then she saw something and smiled grimly. Set in the floorboards was a large metal ring. Coraline knelt and took the cold ring in her hands, and she tugged upward as hard as she could. Terribly, slowly, stiffly, heavily, a hinged square of floor lifted. It was a trap door. It lifted, and through the opening, Coraline could only see darkness. She reached down and her hand found a cold switch. She flicked it without much hope that it would work, but somewhere below her a bulb lit, and a thin yellow light came up from the hole in the floor. 
she could see steps heading down, but nothing else. Coraline put her hand into her pocket and took out the stone with the hole in it. She looked through it at the cellar, but saw nothing. She put the stone back into her pocket. Up through the hole came the smell of damp clay and something else, an acrid tang like sour vinegar. Coraline let herself down into the hole, looking nervously at the trapdoor. It was so heavy that if it fell, she was sure she would be trapped in the darkness forever. She put up a hand and touched it, but it stayed in position, and then she turned toward the darkness below, and she walked down the steps. Set into the wall at the bottom of the steps was another light switch, metal and rusting. She pushed it until it clicked down, and a naked bulb hanging from a wire from the low ceiling came on. It did not give up enough light, even for Coraline to make out the things that had been painted onto the flaking cellar walls. The paintings seemed crude. There were eyes, she could see that, and things that might have been grapes, and other things below them. Coraline could not be sure that they were paintings of people. There was a pile of rubbish in one corner of the room, cardboard boxes filled with mildewed papers and decaying curtains in a heap beside them. Coraline's slippers crushed, crunched across the cement floor. The bad smell was worse now. She was ready to turn and leave when she saw the foot sticking out from beneath the pile of curtains. She took a deep breath. The smells of sour wine and moldy bread filled her head, and she pulled away the damp cloth to reveal something more or less the size and shape of a person. In that dim light, it took her several seconds to recognize it for what it was. The thing was pale and swollen like a grub, with thin, stick-like arms and feet. It had almost no features on its face, which had puffed and swollen like risen bread dough. The thing had two large black buttons where its eyes should have been. Coraline made a noise, a sound of revulsion and horror, and as if it had heard her and awakened, the thing began to sit up. Coraline stood there, frozen. The thing turned its head until both its black button eyes were pointed straight at her. A mouth opened in the mouthless face, strands of pale stuff sticking to the lips, and a voice that no longer even faintly resembled her father's whispered, Coraline. Well, said Coraline to the thing that had once been her other father, at least you didn't jump out at me. The creature's twig-like hands moved to its face and pushed the pale clay about, making something like a nose. It said nothing. I'm looking for my parents, said Coraline, or stolen soul from one of the other children. Are they down here? There's nothing down here, said the pale thing indistinctly. Nothing but dust and damp and forgetting. The thing was white and huge and swollen, monstrous, thought Coraline, but also 
miserable. She raised the stone with the hole in it to her eye and looked through it. Nothing. The pale thing was telling her the truth. Poor thing, she said. I bet she made you come down here as punishment for telling me too much. The thing hesitated, but it nodded. Coraline wondered how she could have ever imagined that this grub-like thing resembled her father. I'm sorry, she said. She's not pleased, said the thing that was once her other father. Not best pleased at all. You've put her quite out of sorts. And when she gets out of sorts, she takes it out on everybody else. It's her way. Coraline patted its hairless head. Its skin was tacky like warm bread dough. Poor thing, she said. You're just a thing she made and then threw away. The thing nodded vigorously. As it nodded, the left button eye fell off and clattered onto the concrete floor. The thing looked around vacantly with its one eye, as if it had lost her. Finally it saw her, and as if making a great effort, it opened its mouth once more and said in a wet, urgent voice, Run, child. Leave this place. She wants me to hurt you, to keep you here forever, so that you can never finish the game and she will win. She is pushing me so hard to hurt you. I cannot fight her. You can, said Coraline. Be brave. She looked around. The thing that had once been her other father was between her and the steps up and out of the cellar. She started edging along the wall, heading toward the steps. The thing twisted bonelessly until its one eye was again facing her. It seemed to be getting bigger now and more awake. Alas, it said, I cannot. And it lunged across the cellar toward her then, its toothless mouth opened wide. Coraline had a single heartbeat in which to react. She could only think of two things to do. Either she could scream and try to run away and be chased around a badly lit cellar by the huge grub thing, be chased until it caught her, or she could do something else. So she did something else. As the thing reached her, Coraline put out her hand and closed it around the thing's remaining blunt eye and she tugged as hard as she knew how. For a moment, nothing happened. Then the button came away and flew from her hand, clicking against the walls before it fell onto the cellar floor. The thing froze in place. It threw its pale head back blindly and opened its mouth horribly wide, and it roared its anger and frustration. Then, all in a rush, the thing swept toward the place where Coraline had been standing, but Coraline was not standing there anymore. She was already tiptoeing as quietly as she could up the steps that would take her away from the dim cellar with the crude paintings on the walls. She could not take her eyes from the floor beneath her, though across which the pale thing flopped and writhed, hunting for her. Then. As if it was being told what to do, the creature stopped moving, 
and its blind head tipped to one side. It's listening for me, thought Coraline. I must be extra quiet. She took another step up, and her foot slipped on the step, and the thing heard her. Its head tipped toward her. For a moment it swayed and seemed to be gathering its wits. Then, fast as a serpent, it slithered for the steps and began to follow them up toward her. Coraline turned and ran wildly up the last half-dozen steps, and she pushed herself up onto the floor of the dusty bedroom. Without pausing, she pulled the heavy trapdoor toward her and let go of it. It crashed down with a thump just as something large banged against it. The trapdoor shook and rattled in the floor, but it stayed where it was. Coraline took a deep breath. If there had been any furniture in that flat, even a chair, she would have pulled it onto the trapdoor, but there was nothing. She walked out of that flat as fast as she could without actually ever running, and she locked the front door behind her. She left the door key under the mat. Then she walked down onto the drive. She had half expected that the other mother would be standing there waiting for Coraline to come out, but the world was silent and empty. Coraline wanted to go home. She hugged herself and told herself that she was brave, and she almost believed herself. And then she walked around to the side of the house in the gray mist that wasn't a mist, and she made for the stairs to go up. funny people. That's it from me here on Four Cents a Podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me here again next time. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and do try to remember to enjoy yourselves.